this psychologist that I was seeing through one of the big eating disorder clinics was like, oh, yes, definitely you meet criteria for binge eating disorder. And I was like, oh, wow, okay, cool. I know that because I own the DSM because I'm a speech, you know, a therapist. But this psychologist straight away went to, he said, what's your weight? And I said, I, I don't know because I don't weigh myself. And he goes, I want you to weigh yourself daily and submit it to me on this app. And I went, oh, okay. And he goes, I also want you on this app to log for me everything that you're eating in a day. And I want you to submit it to me. And I'm lucky that I had the insight that I was like, whoa, Francis, danger zone. Like this is because I know because I've been there in the past where I've been very, very, very restricted for the purpose of losing weight, that if I get into a routine of that and then I feel success in that, that that's going to drive me and I'm going to struggle to move away from that. And my whole thing was I want to learn to have a healthy relationship with food. And I feel like he was just throwing this other disordered pattern at me. And so I actually did, I did weigh myself twice for him. And then it just felt so wrong to me. And I'm, I'm really grateful that I was in a position where I felt strong enough to go, do you know what? I'm, I'm not comfortable with this. And I actually discontinued the service. And so that's where I'm at with my journey, probably because there has not been an appropriate service for me to actually seek assistance where I felt that it was the right sort of therapy or, yeah, had that understanding of what I needed. Welcome to Princess in the Pea podcast, a show where we talk about all things neurodiversity with those who know it best, lived experience, of course. I'm your host, Annie Crow, and I'm an autistic ADHDer. I started this podcast so I could share meaningful conversations that explore the lives of neurodivergent people like myself. We talk about everything from employment to healthcare, education, parenting, relationships, mental health and more, but all with a neurospicy lens. Welcome to the last two episodes of season one. These episodes are a little overdue, but consistency isn't our goal and is often unattainable for many of us neurodivergent and disabled humans. And ain't nobody got time for that. This is part one of two episodes with the delightful and ever so insightful Francis Brennan, who is an autistic speechy, also known as speech pathologist, who, like many of us, was late to the diagnoses party but she is definitely making up for lost time. Frances is a well-loved speaker at Yellow Ladybugs events, and you can find some great links in the show notes for more of her genius. Most of season two is already recorded, and we cannot wait to share some of these incredible conversations over the coming weeks of spring, or autumn for our Northern Hemisphere friends. This episode is near and dear to my heart. As some of you may already know, I recently founded a not-for-profit, Edna, which is short for Eating Disorders Neurodiversity Australia, and is focused on building neurodiversity-affirming, accessible and inclusive eating disorder healthcare, something that has been rather lacking. 
We've had a huge August. I was invited to speak at the Australian New Zealand Academy for Eating Disorders Conference in Sydney. We launched our very first podcast, Neurospiced, with a capital E-D on the end, a monthly series sharing the voices of lived experience. And we sold out of our first webinar in less than nine hours. So exciting. Woohoo! I think what this reflects is how desperately needed education, training and awareness of the neurodivergent experience with eating disorders really is. And Edna is here for it. Before we start, a quick content warning. We will obviously be discussing eating disorders and disordered eating, including more specifics than you generally find in eating disorder podcasts, such as weight and diets and disordered eating behaviors. Hopefully nothing too triggering. Please be kind to yourself and your safety always comes first. We'll have some helpful links and contact numbers in the show notes if you feel like you need more support or if any of these topics are triggering. Take care of you. One of the reasons we decided to be more specific is we believe it's critical for clarifying what disordered eating actually is because the vagueness and tiptoeing around it is dangerous for those of us who need more explicit descriptions and understanding to know if we're actually struggling with an eating disorder and need to seek help. I personally went almost two decades without knowing I had an eating disorder and I was fully immersed in the health system and seeing lots of doctors and allied health professionals in this time. Besides never eating a lot of vomiting or eating a houseload of food in one go, I didn't know what disordered eating or most eating disorders were. Maybe I was naive, but the more I talk to others in recovery and in the profession, the more I see how not alone I really was. Last year, the Australian Eating Disorder Research and Translation Strategy 2021 to 2031 was released. And in this 120-page report, it's not until page 62 that ADHD and autism are mentioned as having emerging evidence of comorbid links. 62. Don't get me wrong, autism is mentioned multiple times throughout the report, but only in comparison to how much funding it's getting comparatively to eating disorders. And on page 25, it talks about diverse populations under the heading cause, risk and protective factors. And these diverse populations included Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, people in sexual minority groups, and the higher prevalence among elite athletes. All of these valid diverse populations. But how is the neurodivergent population missing from this list? By the way, the evidence is not emerging around autism and ADHD and eating disorders. It's been coming out since the 80s. It's 2022. That's at least 30 years that we've known there's a link. And it actually says on this page, individual traits that are risk factors, and I heard this endlessly at the conference I was at recently, was things like negative affect, low self-esteem, detachment-related personality traits like social isolation or inhibition, and perfectionism all predispose, exacerbate, or maintain dysfunctional eating behaviours. You might as well have tied up an autistic ADHD in a bow and served it on a platter. These things are very commonly what we experience. We're not the only population that experiences them, but we experience them at a much higher rate than the general population. Anyway, we'll link it in the show notes. You can have a squiz. The National Eating Disorder Collaboration are currently working on the actual eating disorder strategy that is expected out next year. And that's basically why Edna exists, because... 
myself and a huge number of neurodivergent people who have had or still have eating disorders want to be heard, want to be included and want to be acknowledged. And page 62 doesn't cut it. So we did what any group would do and we started a not-for-profit in the hopes that our voices will be taken seriously. And so far so good. We're not trying to point fingers or put blame on anyone. Eating disorders are so complex, but we're also saying it's not good enough anymore to ignore vulnerable groups who are disproportionately affected by eating disorders and have some of the worst outcomes. The good news is, is we've got a lot of allies in the eating disorder community and they are helping us to raise our voice and making sure we are heard. And I just want to say a big shout out to all those wonderful humans. If you're still listening... I appreciate you, and as you can see, I am very passionate about neurodivergent healthcare. So without further ado, let me get on to the fun stuff. Francis and I are two very chatty ADHDers, and we ended up talking for over three hours, (laughs) of which we will now share most of over the next two episodes to finish season one with a bang. And as Bluey likes to say, let's do this. As someone, and I don't know how you feel about this, as someone who lived 20 years without knowing I had an eating disorder, I would really like people to rip that band-aid off and explain what disordered eating is. I was talking to my best mate the other day about coming on this podcast and she said to me, well, you've got an eating disorder. And I said, yeah, I said, do you remember a couple of years ago I went through therapy and and she was like, oh yeah, I kind of remember that. She goes, but what's disordered about your eating? And I sort of explained, you know, it's my relationship with food. It's my routine around eating. It's the emotional distress it causes. And I explained some of the behaviors to her and she was like, hmm, so that's disordered. And my friend is also autistic and late in life discovering that she was autistic. And she was just like, so that's not normal behavior and I said well I said no I'm, I'm led to believe this is unhealthy this relationship with food and she was like right I do all those things as well and I was like yeah cool yeah we're pretty similar and she like me has battled with her weight over the years and I could sort of it was just this moment that I could see this sort of penny drop where she was like right because you know everyone thinks of eating disorder as anorexia nervosa and bulimia Yeah, and the visual of a skeletal woman. Correct. Which, as we know, less than 6% of those with anorexia are actually underweight, which is mind-blowing. Yeah. This is so good for me to hear because I... I definitely respect the fact that I never want to trigger anyone and I never want to ever be a part of anyone getting ideas to eat disorderedly. Is that a thing? Anyway. (laughs) But we know it doesn't work like that. Right? It's in you, it's intrinsic, it's... It's a way that you're coping. It's, you know, and I don't think that we can suggest it, if that makes sense. No, I totally agree. And I, you know, there's pro anasites out there. I've never been on one, but I heard they exist. And, you know, it's where you're supposed to like encourage that behavior. But if that exists already, why are we keeping this silent? Why aren't we countering that with rhetoric around explaining what to look for and what to be aware of? Because so much of disordered eating is diet culture and people don't even know that. Absolutely. And for someone generally to end up on that site, they are potentially already having some of the underlying thoughts, you know, intrusive thoughts or self-view that they're coming across those pages. So I think having a discussion about here's what it looked like for me and here is my journey to help, I don't necessarily think that that's problematic. I think that that's maybe helpful for people to realise that, you know, because prior to realising that I had disordered eating, I just viewed myself as a yo-yo dieter 
And I thought, yeah, yeah, that's normal. Like everyone does that, right? Yeah, yeah. Especially in larger bodies. They Correct. congratulate us for it. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And my weight has fluctuated massively since early adulthood. And it wasn't until I moved in with my partner that I realised how many behaviours I have around eating that are, you know, unusual or unhelpful. And it was only because my partner was like, what are you doing? And I was like, what? what? <laughs> and, you know, because I'd lived by myself for five years So I just, I did me the way that I wanted to do me. And it was only once I had someone else looking at it, you know, 24-7 that I realised that, yeah, I had some unusual patterns of behaviour. It's one of those things that I feel like we deal with a lot as autistic people where it's implicit, right? People don't meet up and say, oh, you know, what's your eating schedule like these days and how much are you eating and what's your variety like? And it's just not talked about. And when you do have social interactions, if it is around food, which is commonly a thing, it's usually when people were like openly talking about what diet they were on. And that was very disordered talk without actually identifying the fact that it was disordered. (laughs) It was so normal. Let's not normalize disordered eating people. Let's call it out for what it is. I'm really lucky. I grew up in a household where Um, my mother has never communicated any hangups around body image or she was possibly slightly restricted in the food that we had in that like we didn't have junk food much when I was a kid. My partner always laughs that a treat in my house growing up was um, one of those little ice cream cones with a sprinkle of sultanas in the bottom. So like no ice cream in it, just the cone and sultanas. But we were very happy with that as kids because we didn't know different. But yeah, exactly. I had a friend when I was 18 and she was considerably older than me. So I think she was maybe in her early 40s already because I met her through looking after her son. But we became very good friends and she was very into dieting and particularly like prescribing to certain diets. So, you know, those brand diets that are very restrictive in terms of like, no, you can eat green capsicum, but you can't eat red capsicum. What a joke. And like weighing out going, I can only have one protein in each meal and I can't mix a protein with dairy and all of these rules. But I had this amazing success because she gave me a photocopy of it because she paid for it. And it was a prescription diet, you know, and she gave it to me. And I dropped a huge amount of weight. I went from being like a size 16 down to a size 8 in a matter of months. And everyone was telling me how fantastic I looked and I felt amazing. And then I remember at the time, and it's it's so vivid in my mind, I was working at a primary school and I was on yard duty and I was talking to one of the other teachers about how a new Mars bar had been released that was all caramel, no nougat, just, I think it was called like the Mars Bar Ego or something. Yeah. And I love caramel. And so I was like, oh, more than anything, I want to try it. And so she was like, well, why can't you try it? And I was like, no, I can't. Because of the diet. And she was like, but Francis, you've, you've lost all this weight. Like you're doing really well. It's okay to have a treat. And I was just like, no, I can't. And I was so stuck in this rule. And I was so scared of what would happen if I had that just one time. To the point that like, not only was I denying myself, but I was also having conversations with people about it. Like it was that, you know, at the front of my mind. And no one pointed out the disorderedness of that. Of that, yeah, yeah. Well, this one, this one lady, I was lucky she did. And I remember having the conversation, but at the time it didn't change anything for me. It no, wasn't until I had not. health issues that, um, and even then it wasn't picked up as an eating disorder. I think the doctor said, go and eat a bowl of pasta because oh. I had, I ended up with a twisted bowel. Oh, wow. Yeah, so but even then it wasn't, it was never picked up that it was disordered either. There's just so much in that that I desperately want to unpack. That is amazing. And I can relate so closely with my own experience. And I think the other reason that I feel like this is really important hearing these conversations is, you know, as autistic people, we have, we do have very rules-based systematic thought patterns, right? It's just 
how our brain is wired. And a lot of the times that's really helpful and, you know, cool. But but sometimes it makes us slightly susceptible to things like disordered eating thoughts that might be harmless for a lot of people. But when you throw them at us, it's like they latch on. And because it's so much a part of our identity, because we've grown up being very black and white thinking and I don't even like that term, but you know what I mean, Oof. that... It doesn't feel odd. It doesn't feel different. And so, well, it feels safe. Right? It, it feels You know what's happening. You know what's expected. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got that control. In your speech, you mentioned this. You talk about making the implicit explicit, yes. which I, I think is, you know, it's a pretty common thing for your profession to talk about that if they understand our brains. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I was just talking to a developmental educator the other day and she was articulating this to me too. And I just loved it because so much of the time people really don't understand that if you don't call it out in a really direct way, we don't get it. We're just, and it's not that it's, that it's not lacking. It's not bad. We're not dumb. It's just a different way to communicate. I love this with my, so I have largely a neurotypical staff, right, at my clinic. Oh, that must be interesting. And we are really big, like we have done so much work within our clinic. We've restructured everything because I will just say to my team when they write something, I'll say, that's not neurodiversifying, please, like come at that again. I love that. Um, I, I I don't love this. And it's really funny because we often have parents. So because we treat such a large number of autistic children, we often have autistic parents. Of course. An influencer that I follow, she has this saying where she says cats don't have dogs, which is another way of saying, you know, apples don't fall far from trees. Yes, and I so love that. We often struggle, or my neurotypical staff, I should say, struggle a bit with the boundaries because we find that um, sometimes our autistic parents, you know, they linger too long chatting. They don't realise that maybe um, the clinician's trying to wrap up the conversation. And, you know, my staff, they say to me, they're like, I don't know what to do. Like, I can't get this parent to leave. And I say, well, you know how you keep subtly hinting, you know, one, two, three, four, five times? I'm like, that's all sub-threshold. So you think you've hinted five times, but it is not being picked up. You haven't hit their threshold. You need to step it up and be more explicit, even though that feels rude or uncomfortable to you. It's going to be okay for that person because you're only just hitting their threshold. So as long as you're polite with, you know, saying something like, hey, I'm loving chatting to you, but I've actually got another client waiting in the waiting room, they're going to go, oh, cool, chat to you next time. Whereas if you just keep sort of looking at the person in the waiting room or going, yeah, yeah, okay, okay, they're not getting that you're trying to wrap them up. They're, they're assuming that you're okay is saying okay and that you're still free to chat. Yeah. And so it's just about going, we all have different thresholds for where we, and, you know, that's not every autistic person. That's, you know. No, of course not. Like this is, I know, like we're stereotyping here, but Absolutely. obviously this is this still happens to different degrees to yeah. us. Yes, and everybody's thresholds are just at a different level. And the yeah. thing is, I think we all just assume that there's this one level and that we should all pick up on those social cues. And I say to my team, well, if someone's not picking up on it, step it up a notch, like be a little bit more clear. Yeah, exactly. You know, that's. Yeah, meet them halfway. <laughs> that's right. Like just tell someone what you're thinking or what you need. Yeah. And people are not really ever likely to get upset with that because you're managing people's expectations and you're just being clear about what you need. Yeah, especially if it's clear that that's what they need. You can always try the subtle stuff. And if that's not working, then you move to the polite, direct stuff. Because for me, like I'm I'm probably lean towards more of the I do pick that stuff up, which, yes, anyone listening that doesn't think they're autistic, you can still pick that stuff up. <laughs> I'm hyper aware. You can be overly aware of that stuff, actually, yes. to encounter, which is me. I'm very anxious. Same. Yes. And I wonder yep. how much of that is our ADHD <laughs> slash anxiety mm. brains. But um. 
or just being female oh, as well. Good point, and, good point. There's so know, many layers there, right? It's into you, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would look at that and think instead of assuming that she needs to go, I'd probably half the time interpret that as they hate me <laughs> and I've said something stupid and then go like ruminate about it rather than, oh, she just needed to go to an appointment. Like there's so many ways you can interpret that. Just be direct. Yeah, but that's where you've just got to have that, yeah, that really clear follow through of like, oh, that's my next, you know, appointment that's coming. Like, and they're going to be like, oh, cool. Exactly, right? It's just explicit. You're just explicit. It's not rude. I wanted to talk to you about something that I'm curious to know if you've experienced this because I reflect on it and just think how. Okay, so I'm going to explain. So I was seeing a dietitian, one of many that I've seen in my life, and this was like around the time I was almost at the point where I was starting to recognize that I had an eating disorder. I was at a point where I'd given up on dieting. You know, I'd said stuff you anti-diet, but I hadn't quite moved to the point of oh, actually you have an eating disorder. (laughs) So I started seeing this dietitian and I signed up for like 12 months with her and I'd see her once a month for a private session. She was lovely. She was so lovely and she was very anti-diet and all about moderation, which I laugh in the face of. (laughs) (laughs) And I slowly started to build rapport with her and feel like I could be honest about my eating, which is hard because we've had a lot of doctors and health professionals like gaslight us when we open up. Anyway, uh, yeah, and so in that whole time, that's 12 months of seeing her. Actually, I think it was 11 because by the 12th month I'd given up. I was very open about some of my very obvious disordered eating behaviours that was a mixture between restricting and binging. (laughs) And when I would mention them, she would dismiss them in a way that was almost – I feel like she thinks she was helping me feel better. Like, oh, we all eat a whole cake now and then. Or, oh, you know, we all skip breakfast now and then or something. And I was like, this is not helping. And I don't know if this is just me, but I'm very good at, I almost like, I'll give you a taste of the pie and I'll see your reaction. But if your reaction... But then I'll decide. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. If your reaction isn't what I like, which it really is, I'm not going to show you the whole pie. Yep. So I was giving her a taste of the pie and she did not help me. <laughs> she, I'm sure she thought she did. And I was like, all I could say to that was like, yeah, you're right. Oh, yeah, I don't know why I was worried about it. But yeah, not once did she think, oh, maybe we should look at eating disorders. And I asked, actually, this was a nutritionist, not a dietitian. I must correct that. Um, I asked a dietitian that I saw a few years later, way into eating disorder recovery. And I said, what's the difference between dietitians and nutritionists and where's the responsibility to check if, if any of your clients have eating disorders? And she said, well, dietetics, like they get a lot more training in this and, you know, they're more clinical, blah, blah, blah. And she almost explained it away in a, like nutritionists don't have that expertise. I'm like, but you're a nutritionist. Your whole job is talking to people about what they eat as if you shouldn't be aware of eating disorders and flags for it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it just blows my mind and I was curious to know, Have you opened up to health professionals about your quote unquote disordered eating and felt dismissed or awarded for them? All of the above. Like, am I alone in this? You are absolutely not alone in that. And I think, I mean, not just eating disorders for me, it's been any, any of my, my neuro um, divergent sort of stuff. And yes, most definitely the eating disorder. And for me, the biggest barrier has always been, well, you're a health professional. Mm. That must be hard. And I'm like, yeah, I am. I I am a health professional. But I think because my 
weight is not always in a category that concerns health professionals. Mm -hmm. They sort of, yeah, just dismiss it and go, oh, no, that's not, you know. Um, But I have not really actively sought heaps of help for the eating disorder. Right. I dabbled once with one of the major eating disorder, like, associations and found that at that point it was around my relationship with food. Um, So I I fall more into the... Mm -hmm restricting which I think fits my autism yeah is it more the anorexia restricting or ARFID ARFID avoidant restrictive food intake okay definitely ARFID and I binge I binge massively which I go I feel like that's my ADHD yes right and maybe that's me compartmentalizing things yeah that's true that's true but for me it feels like there's definitely some overlap. So for me, I'm a yep. massive like emotional eater and I, re- I regulate through eating. And yep. I could Dimming. see, absolutely, yeah, I actually seek like that jaw crunch when I'm stressed. Crunch, sweet, yep. salty, yep. All, all of the things. things. I'm such a, a food stimmer, yep. And I realised this in myself and so I sought help and, you know, this psychologist that I was seeing through one of the big eating disorder clinics was like, oh, yes, definitely you meet criteria for binge eating disorder. And I was like, oh, wow, okay, cool. I know that because I own the DSM because I'm a speech, you know, a therapist. But um, then what happened, though, because I said I need to develop other coping strategies. This is such an emotional thing for me. If I have a hard time, I have a particular meal that I want and a way that I want to eat it. But if I'm having a good day, same food. if I'm having a good day, I want that same meal and I want to celebrate and I want that meal because that's related to me celebrating. And there's this belief in my mind that a food can fix an emotion almost. It's like, if I have this, I will feel better. And I realized that that was problematic. Yeah. I wonder how much of that is the ADHD, you know, the dopamine hit. Yes. Absolutely. That we're desperate for. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. And it's like, I can't, it's funny because when I was thinking about it, I was like, it's almost like I can't have delayed gratification. Oh yeah. But I know that that's not true in all aspects of my life. So there are many aspects of my life where I'm fantastic with that. But when it comes to food, no, delayed gratification, not my same. Um, But this psychologist straight away went to, he said, what's your weight? And I said, I I don't know because I don't weigh myself. Good. So proud. And he goes, I want you to weigh yourself daily and submit it to me on this app. And I went, oh, okay. And he goes, I also want you on this app to log for me everything that you're eating in a day. And I want you to submit it to me. No one can see me, but I'm in shock and covering my mouth, like, because (laughs) I will scream or cry. (laughs) And I'm lucky that I had the insight that I was like, whoa, Francis, danger zone. Like, this is. Thank God. Because I know, because I've been there in the past where I've been very, very, very restricted for the purpose of losing weight, that if I get into a routine of that and then I feel success in that, that that's going to drive me and I'm going to struggle to move away from that. And my whole thing was I want to learn to have a healthy relationship with food. And I feel like he was just throwing this other disordered pattern at me. Um, Stop being offered. Go to anorexia or orthorexia. Yeah. And so I actually did. I did weigh myself twice for him. (sighs) And then it just felt so wrong to me. And I'm, I'm really grateful that I was in a position where I felt strong enough to go, do you know what? I'm, yeah. I'm not comfortable with this. And I actually discontinued the service. But that being said, when you and I were talking about what we were going to talk about today, yeah, yeah. I realised that some of the questions, I think one that you'd sort of spoken about was yeah, like yeah. what helped with recovery. Yeah. And I realised 
I am not recovered at all. I actually haven't even started really unpacking it. Where I'm at at the moment is that I'm sitting in a place where I go, I recognise these behaviours in myself. I recognise that they're unhealthy, but there are so many other things that I'm working on and other areas that I'm being challenged in that I'm going to do my best when I can, when I'm well, when I'm not overloaded or feeling burnt out. Whenever that happens, yeah. And when I am and I slip up, I'm going to let that be okay. Oh, that's so good. It's like radical self-acceptance just to get by. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not okay forever, but it's okay for now. And so that's where I'm at with my journey, probably because there has not been an appropriate service for me to actually seek assistance where I felt that it was the right sort of therapy or, yeah, had that understanding of what I needed. Yeah, that's so interesting. Uh, my mind's spinning with exciting like questions. <laughs> I don't know where to start. Um, as a speech pathologist, do you work with kids who have Alfred? Absolutely. Right. Yeah, I do. Yeah. And it's really interesting because I don't currently treat any children myself, but one of my staff members does and she comes to me. And it's so funny because I trained in a few different programs and I actually trained in um, pediatric nutrition And so I know a lot about it. I've done a lot of the training programs, but I cannot get on board with them. I don't advertise on my website that we do any sort of feeding therapy. And I say to any pediatrician that refers, because we have clients that stay with us long-term, right? So lots of my clients I've been treating for a decade because, you know, as they go through different stages of life, they have different presenting transitions because they're, Mm. yeah, most of my kids are neurodivergent. And so I only offer feeding therapy to clients that we already have a really strong relationship with because it is so scary and I get that food is so scary. scary. And I hear about these kids that go to feeding clinics where they're in a room with six other children that have feeding issues and, you know, the broccoli is put down in front of them and one of the, you know, children cries, the other one crawls under the table and the kid that was maybe going to give it a go is then now scared of it. It's like, what is going on here? Um, but funnily enough, my clinician, my clinician said to me the other day, I've got a mum who wants to try, she wants to get her daughter onto smoothies. And my first response was, "Ugh, what? No, that's so scary. No. And my clinician was like, what? And I'm like, oh, they have lumps in them. There's so many different things combined. Yes. They're consistent. And oh I said, God. does this kid even drink milkshakes? And the clinician was like, no, she doesn't even drink milkshakes. And I was like, okay, we are so far from smoothies. <laughs> like, yes. you know, I'm just, but I just had this full physical response to it where I was yes. like, no, that is so much. <laughs> and so whenever parents come to this clinician with like, oh, we want to try this food. Yeah. She comes to me in our mentoring sessions like, so what do you think of this? Or like, you know, mum wants us to have a ham and cheese croissant. And I'm like, well, for starters, why does mum want that? And then she will go, does the kid eat hair? does the kid eat cheese does you know can we pull it apart can we Mm -hmm. because I don't think people that have never had it don't realize how terrifying scary unsafe food Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. scary and and viscerally like repulsive and absolutely uncomfortable and all the things my partner loves to cook and it's been hard for us in our relationship because she wants to cook all these different things, whereas I would happily eat the same thing every night of the week. Same. Oh, my God, this is so amazing. I'm exactly the same. (laughs) I remember one meal we were, I think I was trying to eat some, it was some, that's right, it was a frittata, but it had like chorizo and it had sun-dried tomatoes and it had mushrooms and it had lots of things that were kind of high risk foods for me, I suppose. And I was pulling it apart 
and like eating bits of it. And she was like, what are you doing? What are you doing? And I just snapped. I was like, leave me alone. I'm trying to eat this thing. Will you just let me try and eat it? And she was like, whoa. (laughs) And we've got this agreement now. She understands that for me to try a new food, I have to be in a good space mentally. So if I've had a tough day at work, if I'm stressed, I don't actually have capacity and it's not me being fussy and it's not me trying to hurt her feelings about the food that she's cooked and it's not that I think her food's yuck. I just don't have anything in me to extend myself to this new sensory and flavour. Like I just want something familiar. Oh, absolutely. You've explained that so well. You know, what makes me sad is that you know, for my old self and also for all the people out there that, you know, haven't been as privileged as you and I have to understand the neurodiversity paradigm and figured out how to accept their autistic brains and ADHD brains or whatever, who are experiencing that, which I relate to in my past, and feeling full of shame and not knowing how to articulate it beyond maybe getting snappy or looking like you're being emotional. Yeah. I was talking to someone recently and explaining eating disorders and neurodivergence. So I was giving her an example. I was like, you know, Susie, this 13-year-old little girl, is eating less and she's losing weight and her mum's noticed it and she's freaking out. So she takes her to the doctor and... You know, she asked Susie, why, why aren't you eating? And Susie's like, um, I'm not hungry. And she doesn't believe her. She's like, oh, she just started high school. She's clearly got body image issues. The doctor gives her like an eating disorder diagnosis of anorexia. And they try to do traditional therapy. It fails. And it's because they don't realize that, you know, eventually they figure out, hopefully, <laughs> is that the complicating part is actually that she isn't hungry because she's got interoception issues and she's so sensory avoidant and it hasn't been a problem because in primary school she ate the same thing over and over and now in high school everyone's got different lunches and mum changed her lunchbox because she wanted to be like the other kids not she maybe the mum commented on it one day and the mum interpreted that as you want me to change your lunchbox and and she maybe didn't link all of these things together because she's got no context no understanding of it which Mm. none of us do until we do right and if they just figured that out the whole thing wouldn't be a problem right? She mm-hmm. was like, oh, would Susie know that she had this issue? And I was like, probably not. Correct. Yeah. I'm 32. And only this year has my partner started saying to me, because I'm someone who, you know, we make the joke that it's, oh, Francis, you're always poorly. Like you always feel poorly. I have tummy aches all the time. Like I'm just one of those people. And I'll say, I'll say to my partner, I'll be like, oh, I feel so sick. I've got a tummy ache. I just feel rotten we've only just realised that something is going on for me that I Mm -hmm. interpret hunger as sick. Wow. And so Holly will say to me, have you eaten? Have you eaten? And I'll be like, no, I feel sick. And she'll be like, please, will you just eat? And so normally she just makes me a snack and then I eat and then I'm like back to bouncing around and like. Amazing. she's like, yeah, you were hungry. And I'm like, right. So I've always just thought I felt sick. And it's introception, right? Yep, I've been a grazer and so, you know, my mum tells a story that she had to pull me out of three-year-old kindergarten because I used to just scream the house down when she'd try and drop me off and mum thinks it's because I wasn't allowed to just eat all day because I'd come from at home, I would just walk around grazing, I would eat, you know, crackers, I would eat apples, I would just be eating all day and then, you know, I was put into this program where it was like, you know, we eat morning tea at 11am and I just could not cope with it and I couldn't regulate clearly. Yeah. But clearly that's actually still something that when I'm at home, I will snack throughout the day. But when I'm at work, I don't. And then I come home and I'm like, oh, I feel really sick. And it takes somebody else saying to me, you are hungry. And even then I'm like, nah, nah, this is different this time. I am sick for sure. 
and then I eat something and yeah, like, like miraculously I feel better. So it's hunger, but I cannot, no matter how hard I try, I cannot reframe whatever my body is feeling to communicate to my brain hunger. It's just not working. I just, I love this. This is so important to talk about because introception is like, it's such a buzzword at the moment that's coming out, but it's still so like not understood well by the general populace. I was trained and this is the thing, like I've had to undo so much of my training. So I literally started my career as like autism is a disorder and children have it and Uh, they present like this. And I remember asking parents in in questionnaires because I was something like, oh gosh, I was only like twenty two or 23 when I started practicing yeah and you know how does your child respond to pain does your child feel the cold will they wear a jumper you know asking these questions that it were like oh they don't wear a jumper when it's cold or they must be autistic but like it was cold and pain those were like the two things that we were sort of taught to but not hunger and toileting and all the other signals that we get no and no sort of understanding why or what that must be like for an individual experiencing it, just just as a symptom on my my little checklist, you know, mm. to be like, mm-hmm. oh, that's more evidence that they're autistic. I'll send oh, that yeah. to a pediatrician. Um, <laughs> but yeah, nothing to sort of acknowledge it or to support the parent through it or the child through yeah. it or nah, nothing. Explain why that it's happening. Yeah, still has been like a light bulb moment. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's and I love this and I I really do love talking to professionals like yourself that people expect to know this stuff and it's just not taught, no. you know. And, and I think that's what really worries me is that people put so much trust in health professionals and I'm not saying they shouldn't, but I, I feel like, you know, as a society, we need to acknowledge that there are limitations and we're really slow to catch oh. up with what we know <laughs> in terms of researching it, putting it into practice, absolutely making it widespread enough that everyone's on board <laughs> is a very slow process. <laughs> I saw a client recently that I hadn't seen for eight years. And so I'd seen them when I was, you know, early career speech pathologist and then they've come back to me and they actually traveled back from New South Wales to see me for an assessment because they wanted to come back Amazing. to me. And I'd always had a really nice bond with this mum and it was really funny because this was the first time we ever sort of verbally expressed that maybe we're neurokin. Ah. And I said to her, just in passing because we have such a delightful relationship, I said, oh, did you ever get a diagnosis of for your child, like this other speech condition that this child meets criteria for. And she's like, yeah, I did. And I said, gosh, because I didn't give it to you because I knew nothing about it then. And I said, gosh, I think back on the things that I did as a junior clinician, I said, I was so not the right person to help you guys in your journey at that point. And she goes, she looked at me and it was so lovely. She goes, but you helped in other ways. That's why we stayed. And that's why we followed you. Like you added so much value. I love and what that. she was talking about was like her family and embracing who her child was and all of those sorts of things that I did. Yes. <laughs> like my actual like clinical knowledge was rubbish at that point because I was a baby clinician but I love that she just said ah that's fine like we got other things for seeing you and I still feel that as a speech pathologist that that's why I don't do nuts and bolts speech therapy ever like that's not what people come to me for and so I don't think that's what's needed for neurodivergent people it's not to be honest I think it doesn't work yeah and it's a really big sort of thing because I feel like I go and I present at conferences and I do podcasts like this and then people come to see me and they're like oh we've seen other speech pathologists but it's not been like this and then I have this internal crisis of is what I'm doing speech pathology like am I you know but (laughs) I don't know what it is but it's a combination of my speech as well as my own neurodivergent Mm -hmm. lived experience life yeah and you know what people feel supported by it so yeah because you understand keep doing it Mm. 
Yeah, but I don't know what it is. No, I, I don't know. know what it is. No, but, okay, so I think you're being a bit self-deprecating, which is fine. <laughs> I'm, I'm similar. But I just want to point out that I know what it is because I've been those clients and I've had those professionals. I have, I've had many neurodivergent professionals, luckily, and only recently, and, and they're phenomenal. And I think we can't undersell the value, well, one, of lived experience, which we all know is so important, but two, of finding a health professional that not only understands it, but knows how to teach you how to embrace it, which is like that next level. And because you not only have the lived experience of understanding it better, but also in teaching yourself how to really embrace your neurodivergence, I'm sure you were one of the only health professionals that taught her stuff like there's nothing wrong with her child and if she tries these other things, they might respond better and all the things that are like really gentle, let's make their environment supported and not change them. Like those things that it, I think to you and me and, and to our minds, this stuff feels like common sense. And so we undersell the expertise and the knowledge we have. But for neurotypicals, from so many that I listen to here and have seen as a patient, that stuff is not natural to them. And because, you know, all of you have been trained in a health system that does still see us as a disorder and does still see us as a problem. And and sadly, the majority still continually try and, and change the individual and not help their environment. That's the problem. And that's where you're fixing it. And I, I really don't want you to undersell that because I think that is the most powerful thing. This same mother in that appointment said to me, I, because I said to her, because I hadn't seen her for eight years, I said, I said, do the boys know? So the boys went in the room. I said, do the boys know that they're autistic? And she goes, no, no, they don't. And I said, oh, okay. I said, have you got a plan for, you know, how you're going to have that conversation? She goes, well, she goes, I don't really think it's that relevant for, you know, this one. He's not really having any difficulties. But, and I couldn't help myself. And I just said, yeah, can I challenge you on that for a minute? Yeah. <laughs> and I launched into this whole, like, how my life has changed since Knowing. I have recognized and embraced your identity yeah my neurodivergence and yeah. it was really great because yeah. I could see she was a bit taken aback and you know I had that little voice in the back of my head that was oh Francis you impulse control and you've just blabbed all over this woman and this is your agenda in the room but then as we were leaving we were saying goodbye and she was getting back into the car to drive to New South Wales she said hey can we maybe have a zoom session at some point to talk about talking to the boys and I was like yes yes Yay! we can yes we can um yes and that was like a big win for me so as- good you know, as I go through this journey, because receiving the diagnosis, and I actually just finished up with a client last week who, you know, was in tears and sort of saying, thank you, you know, you've changed so much of my life. And I said, yeah, well, we've gone through this journey together because the mother and I both got diagnoses during our time working together. And she said to me, she goes, I remember when you said to me, I think I'm autistic. And I said, yeah. And she goes, and I remember you said to me, Francis, you said, am I a fraud? Because I'm here you know, saying to these parents, this is what you need to do, this is blah, 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 and I'm as problematic or, you know, I have the same, you know, disorder as as these children have. And it was really funny because we both looked at it and we were both crying at this point. We sort of laughed and we were like, how ridiculous because now it's my, you know, it's my strength in, in connecting with people. Yes, it's always been your strength. Now you see it. That's right. But literally I thought I was going to have to leave the profession. I bet you did. I was like, how can I be autistic? And, you know. It doesn't surprise me with what they teach you guys. I do a lot of research just because this is my special interest, clearly. Um, and so I read a lot of academic papers and I read a lot of journal articles and and I talk to a lot of neurodivergent researchers and clinicians and it's something that is very much common for us 
to have to be in this space and it's like you're constantly being told that you're wrong and you're broken and you need to change and you're reading it from the eyes of a quote unquote unbiased clinician or researcher is that even a thing anyway that's <laughs> I digress and you're ignoring that voice in your head that's going this this doesn't seem right I don't I don't really see the problem here that's like me are you saying I'm wrong but I, I I'm I'm yeah, living, yeah. And I'm, yes. I mean, I, I've had my problems and life struggle. But I'm succeeding. Exactly. And and people love me and Ooh. I am worthy. What What's so Ooh. wrong? It's so hard to question that when it's coming from this huge body of a quote unquote evidence-based research and practice. And yeah. you're this like one, thank God for the internet, because there's lots of us now and we're connecting. But you were probably back in the day, a decade ago, this one little junior clinician anyone. going, this does not fit with my moral values. <laughs> Absolutely. Right? I got really excited recently. I was filling out, I was doing my professional registration renewal and there was a question in it and it said, do you have any lived experience? And I was like, what? And I clicked this drop down box because I said, yes, I do have lived experience of Yay. no lived experience. And in my professional body's uh, lived experience section, it had uh, learning disability, swallowing disorder, communication disorder. And there was nothing in there about being neurodivergent because, you know, of course we couldn't have neurodivergent professionals within in our organization and I was gutted and so you know I proudly like clicked that other box and I was like neurodivergent ASD ADHD <laughs> and I was like how is this not in the drop down box when you think about what pediatric speech pathologists do like 80% 90% of our caseload for most of us is autistic kids oh yeah and they're asking about lived experience within our profession and they don't want to acknowledge it it wasn't even there as a possibility. Which is such a problem. And it just, like, it, I probably had a bigger emotional response to it than I should have, but I was like... Oh, no way. I, I think that's so valid. They're just completely ignoring the fact that I actually think that your profession would be well-suited for a lot of autistic people. Yeah, I'm finding quite a few of them. Like, the, the older I get and the more I interact with, I'm like, hey... I, I bet. One of, one of us. <laughs> Um, yeah. And the fact that they're not acknowledging that that's a thing. Celebrating it even, like how amazing would that be? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. We keep asking for acknowledgement and acceptance, but like let's just celebrate this because we're actually amazing at what we do. But back to the eating disorder stuff, I did have something I wanted to talk to you about and, and see your thoughts on this is if we consider the introception issues and we consider the restrictive eating and the weight cycling and and then we consider the binge eating from all the research I've done on this and reflected on my own very similar path, something that I've come to understand is binge eating to an extent can actually just be a response to restriction. Mm. So I'm not saying that binge eating disorder isn't a thing. I'm sure it is. You know, it's 50, it's like half the eating disorders. It's, it's a big population. But I just wonder how many of those people are misdiagnosed because they're more concerned with the binging as the disordered behavior than the restricting that the world says is normal because diets are so normal. And if you're not on one, you're abnormal. <laughs> like... Because I actually, when I went to my, I actually went to my psychiatrist, the one who diagnosed me a few months earlier. And in the period of these few months of me deep diving into figuring out, am I autistic? What does this mean? Let's reassess my entire life as we do. I stumbled across a few crumbs of information of the overlap of eating disorders, which primarily when discussed with autism, mostly focus on anorexia and occasionally ARFID. 
Yes. And then, you know, as we know, binge eating is associated with ADHD, but obviously you can be any of these things and have any of them. It's it's just those are the, the, the things that get attention. And so I looked into it and I went back to him and he was going to diagnose me with binge eating disorder because I, I met the criteria barely, but pretty much. And we started to go through the other eating disorders because I also met the criteria of anorexia. Well, atypical because I'm in a larger body, but let's not go there. And I also sort of met the criteria for Arford. So <laughs> which box do we tick? And and he was just as baffled as me. He's like, take your pick. <laughs> no, I mean, not quite. But he, cool. he ended up deciding that the one that fit most was atypical anorexia or OSFED, other specified feeding and eating disorders. And it's funny because I genuinely thought the biggest problem I had was the binging. But if I think about it deeply enough, I know that the binging is mostly a response to either sometimes emotions and stimming, but majority of the time it's that I've forgotten to eat for so long that I stuff myself. And I think a lot of that is one to do with, you know, you're ravenous by that point, because (laughs) I like to explain we people have like a, a hunger scale of zero to 10. And I'm, I'm missing two to eight. Yeah. So I go from not hungry to starving. <laughs> There's no like warning. And then yeah. equally, I have really poor fullness signals, which is yeah. interoception again. So then I overeat and all of a sudden I look like I have a binge eating disorder, but actually it's more about the interoception and the restriction. I've just had a massive light bulb moment while sitting here. So I'm going to say this and it's say it. feels like be like, oh yeah, Francis has just been sitting on that. <laughs> the whole time you're... You're talking though. I'm like, well, this is ridiculous because we're trying to diagnose you with something that actually doesn't capture our experience or your experience. And what we actually need in the DSM is eating disorder, neurodivergence affected or something like that. It actually just needs to be a separate diagnosis. So there's there's very little point in us going, is it binge eating? Is it restricted? Is it AFID? Because it's actually just a different thing. Exactly. It's disordered eating in the context of being neurodivergent. And like, I totally relate to what you're saying with the restricting. And for me, it's a little bit more, um, well, maybe because I haven't reflected on it heaps, but I think for me. That's okay. I'm far further in the recovery journey. Do you have had a lot of therapy that you haven't had the privilege of yet? I I also do the whole like, oh, well, I've done really well today. Binge, 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 binge. Like, because I did well before. And it's like, and in my head, I do this justification of, well, I used to just eat that badly all the time, so it's heaps better that I'm now just I'm doing it now. That's right. And it's this little self-talk that I have giving myself permission to go back to those comforting behaviours. Um, but essentially it looks the same, restrict being yes. restrict being. But I also think that is exactly the result of yo-yo dieting and weight cycling, right? Because we live, we've, you and I especially, I mean, we have very similar experiences and we're not saying this is the only experience, obviously. Mm. Um, but we just have very similar and going through life where your weight has fluctuated and you have been encouraged to diet continually you hit a point where you've done so many diets that that thought process of restriction and cheat days and stuff or cheat whatever's because you're constantly focused on the restriction and the limiting your mind almost hooks on to like when's that next cheat gonna be and all of a sudden something that was no big deal having chocolate in the house was no big deal and now it's a nightmare it's toxic it's yes. so toxic. Just yeah. I very much have that like reward yourself mentality. Same. Same. yourself. I think that's just diet culture, like latching on yeah. to your rules-based thinking. I, yeah. yeah, I definitely, yeah, I think it's, it's so rubbish. And the other thing that really irritates me, <laughs> this is like a therapy session. We should <laughs> just call this therapy with Annie. <laughs> the other thing that really, I guess, bugs me 
in this space is, you know, people talk, for example, like, okay, so you're autistic and you have restrictive eating, but maybe it's sensory based. So you have ARFID, not anorexia. But what if it's both? And a lot of the time, I think it is both. You know, I I have had an ARFID profile since I was a kid. Uh, I've always been a very fussy, restrictive eater. I've always had all the behaviors of being a very repetitive eater, having a lot of same foods and safe foods and foods that I refuse to try and all these things that I never thought anything about because my brothers were fussy and mom didn't think anything of it. Kids are fussy. And we, you know, we ate enough to get by, whatever. And I've already lost my train of thought. What was I saying? (laughs) It'll come back. It'll come back. Ah, Uh, Talking about, oh yeah. Yeah. So it just, I've always been restrictive and that restriction was not based on weight. It was not based on wanting to be in a smaller body. That only started late primary school for me which is a bit early, yeah. but I think that's quite, it's more common than we think because a lot of young girls and, you know, the research says this, but I'm just putting a generalization out there is a lot of young girls gain a bit of weight before they hit puberty, which is around the yeah. 10, 11, 12 mark. And that's usually the time when diet culture is its ugly head, whether it's the child noticing people changing their behavior towards them mm. or the parents having their own fat phobia and weight stigma. And are starting to freak out about their kid changing body size. Uh, they put them on their first diet, and then begins a lifetime of weight cycling, yo-yo dieting, yeah. ruined metabolism, mental health issues. Let's just let's just leave it there. <laughs> so, I went from being a restrictive-ish eater with yeah. no real care about my weight to a very restricted eater. And and the thing that really <laughs> makes me laugh is you know diets like keto, which has been one of the biggest fads in the last. 10 years, right? Especially something that's been quite widely embraced by certain people in, well, quite a bit of the health profession, which blows my mind. I remember doing keto. I'd done keto twice. And the thing I found very hilarious was that it it basically banned you from eating most fruit, pretty much all fruit, Mm. except for like maybe occasionally a little berry (laughs) and most of the vegetables that had any substance. (laughs) And so the very little fruit and veg that I did eat went out the window and you've all, all of a sudden got me going from having a very restrictive diet in terms of variety to a very restricted diet with more restriction in variety and yeah. restriction in calorie. Like, it's so yeah. bad. Yeah, I feel like from the particular diets I've done, it's almost like I um, I hold a grudge against those food, like, so a food that before. Yeah. And because I think it's, again, you know, you mentioned the black and white thinking, which is sort of very stereotyped, but it's also, mm-hmm. let's be honest, you know, stereotypes come to be generally because they've got some, you know, some yeah, truth to them. they've got a basis. That's right. And so for me, I, foods that were bad foods on the diet that were otherwise healthy foods, so like red capsicum, which has higher amount of sugar than green capsicum, I still look at red capsicums and I'm like, Mm-mm, no. Meanwhile, I'm like, I'm, I'm chowing down on a block of chocolate, but I'm like, can't have that red capsicum. Um, and it's like, I've never been able to forgive those yes. foods that almost, I also felt like kind of tricked by these foods because I was like, what? You're telling me now this isn't healthy? Like this, yes. isn't, like, this is causing me to, to gain weight. Yep. Um, so now I have a, you know, I've got trust issues with red capsicum. Yes. Um, and I haven't been able to move on from that. I, so, I love that we're laughing, but this yeah. is such a real thing. And I'm the same. And the more more diets it, yeah. you do, the more rules you pick up, and all of a sudden, the more restricted, the more it restricted. and all of a sudden, you're doing you're yeah. doing keto, Weight Watchers, Sure Slim. You're doing like five diets in one because you haven't been able to let go of the rules. <laughs> but do you know what my main issue is? What? Here's here's where it becomes really problematic. Yeah. So I have all those rules when I'm trying to to eat well. Yes. You know, when I decide quote that's unquote what I'm well. Doing. Yeah. 
Quote unquote, yeah, for, yep. you know, you can't see yeah, that. Yeah, you can't but see yep, that, yeah. <laughs> Air quotes did happen there. Yes. Um, but my safe yeah, food. What was your safe food? KFC. Oh, yes. That's my husband's favourite. Like, come on. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. But it is the same every time I have it. Every time it's in the same box, Love it's this. in the same, you know, I have an order in which I eat mm-hmm. it. I say to my partner, I say, you know, if she's trying to talk to me, I'll be like, can I just have my KFC and just enjoy it without you talking to me? <laughs> because it's yeah, like a whole, it's like, a process. it's a whole, like, I just need, to, it's like, I'm sorry, I'm engaging with this food right now. Yeah. I cannot engage with you. Like this food needs my full <laughs> attention right now. And it's like this all consuming my relationship yes. with KFC, like do not intrude yeah. on that. And it's such a shame thing for me, particularly because, you know, KFC and, you know, kids at work say stuff to me like, oh, you know, kids fattening centre and like dirty chicken. Um, (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But in my mind, I'm also like, give me some of that. Yeah, like that's my (laughs) safe food. Um, And it's not the same for me. Like I don't. I don't have the same relationship with other fast foods like McDonald's or whatever. It's just that and it's the same meal each time. And in my mind when I'm having a tough time, that can fix everything. Yeah, that's powerful. And I just go, that is so disordered. That's really disordered thinking. But at the same time. But I recognise that No, but is the disorderedness doing that or is the disorderedness viewing that as disordered and then reacting to it with more restriction and rules and diets? Because I feel like. Yes, and then right. I perseverate on it and it becomes an issue and now I actually can't eat KFC without having feelings of guilt. I and bet without... and shame and all that. Mm-hmm. Yep, mm-hmm. and I say things to my partner like, this is the last time, this is the last time of and course. I'm deleting the app, I'm not blah, blah, blah. And, you know, she'll say to me, she's like, you can have it, just let's try not for like two or three times yeah, a week. But you feel like you can't control it, yeah. And I hide yep. it. That's the other big problem. So my, my partner's going to Europe in August and I'm like, I'm already preparing myself to be like Francis. You cannot just order KFC all the time, but even sometimes I will. I will order food and I will take the rubbish. Yeah, out I've done that. Definitely. So that it's not like you know, and you go, that's disordered, you know. But this is the stuff that they don't ask you on questionnaires. They don't. They don't. So they don't pick no. up this sort of and stuff. And I don't know about your partner if she's. Um, I'm assuming she's very supportive and not judgmental about your weight and eating, like mine. And yeah. even though he would never judge my eating and so supports my body in any form. I still hide stuff and I do yeah. it less now, but absolutely, it's still a thing. I have this, I don't know whether this will end up being podcast appropriate because I feel like now we're, we're really talking disordered. Like <laughs> yeah, true. So when I'm in a bad headspace, my partner can say something that I'll be like, are you calling me fat? Is that what, like, are we... And I know that she's not. No, of course not. not. But it's a reflection of how I'm feeling about myself at that point in time. And all of a sudden I can hear these things in anything. Um, And it becomes like we'll have arguments about food because I'll be like, I just want KFC. And she'll be like, oh, why don't we have? And I'll be like, oh, you know, like, you know, and it becomes a big thing. And then it's like, I'll be like, fine, fine, I'm not having it. And she'll be like, no, I'm not telling you to have, not to have it, (laughs) have it. And I'll be like, no, no, it's fine. And it becomes this, you know, um, and all of that is just around my headspace. And that's what needs to be, that's what I need to be able to overcome my eating disorder is I need to be able to work on that. But find for me a clinician (laughs) that can work on that and not just tell me that I'm overweight, which I know. Yeah. But my goal is not to lose weight. My goal is to not be having these arguments in my own head or with my partner around food. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, the eating disorder is not always what the clinician sees as disordered but it's actually what we experience as disordered or problematic. And that's my problem. My problem is is more around what it does for me in my head and what it does 
for my relationship with my partner and how we talk about food. So I love that. I just I think that's so important to highlight because so much of professional expertise is based on them helping you get to an ideal point. And I think that ideal recovery or whatever you want to call it is a neurotypical recovery. And, you know, even if we have a diagnosis and know what we know, it's so rare for a medical professional to say, what outcome do you want? Yeah. Do you know what I just realized when you were saying that? We can actually give them their outcome very well because their outcome is behavior focused and we can mask like nobody's business. So yeah, but we're going to have some trauma and all that in the background. I can do that. That's right. I can do what you want me to do. I can weigh myself. I can. And I remember saying to reference back to when the psychologist asked me to submit my daily food log, I said, that's going to change how I eat because just knowing that I have to submit it for you is going to be enough for me to not order KFC because I don't want to put it on the list. not put it on and eat it anyway and then feel bad when you tell me I'm doing a good job. Yeah, yeah, we'll see. No, I'm too rule-based to do that. But it would make me not order it. So in and of itself, it's changing what I'm doing and it's changing my behaviour because I'm people-pleasing. I'm masking. I'm, I'm trying to make it look like. So he would look at that and go, you're doing really, really well. And I'd be like, yes, I am. Mind you, I'm still having all of these massively intrusive thoughts. And as soon as this list is gone, yes, and they're getting worse. Absolutely. Because I think if we're behavior focused, a lot of us that are neurodivergent have spent our lives walking the walk, walking the neurotypical walk. So if you want me to walk the not eating disordered walk, I can probably do that too for a while. Um, But it's not actually changing. No. Like the actual, and I think we've got to actually recognize the thought processes that are going on. And that they're not, they're not the same, I, I don't think, as they are for, for neurotypical people necessarily. No, absolutely. And also acknowledge the damage that that does as well. Like in, in so many layers, right, you're not only not fixing the eating disorder, half the time you're making it worse and, and you're additionally lowering someone's self-worth and causing them more distress mentally. Yeah. When that's not even – like it's not like they're intentionally doing it. They just don't understand our brains. <laughs> But I said this quite explicitly to that therapist. I said, I'm really worried that this list is going to make me change my behavior and that I don't want to weigh myself because I know I get fixated on numbers. And he sort of said, well, this is what we do for binge eating disorder. So so I was sort of like, I was like, wow. Um, Okay. And he was a really, like, he was a really lovely therapist. I actually really liked him, but I just got to this. Well, and I guess the thing is, yes, you you know, he was there because he wanted to help me. Um, Yeah. But he didn't have any of the tools. He didn't have any understanding of of what was actually going on for me. Okay, so first of all, professionals like the ones we are talking about, the gold standard, they do exist. They're very rare. And even if you find them, good luck getting in. (laughs) I think I spent a year trying to find a dietitian that was truly neurodiversity affirming. And she's autistic, so that's fantastic. And no, I will not tell people. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, oh, yeah, give me a yeah. Line, well, I did that. I did that for a while, and yeah, now I'm like, I still want to see her. <laughs> so, but but in saying that, people, please know that you know I've literally started this not for profit to, to increase the amount of access to people like her. Yeah. So, so I'm hoping that that happens faster than than most things, and that soon we'll have this big list of of neurodiversity affirming eating eating disorder health professionals that I can shout out. Um, I spent the last few years working solely with a psychologist on the eating disorder stuff and that was definitely enough for me and every every time I tried to go to see 
a dietitian. And the first one I tried after I was diagnosed was a dietitian that specialized in autism and mostly worked with autistic kids. So I thought, oh, well, she'll get it. And I know more than anyone, having seen many people, that it's more important to me to see a, a health professional that understands my neurodivergence than it is for them to understand whatever the health problem is, which is quite sad. Uh, so I, I I went to see this dietitian and she triggered my eating disorder so bad. And she was lovely, lovely, lovely person and literally very upfront with me about the fact that she had no experience in eating disorders, which absolutely blows my mind. Mm. How can you be an autistic treating dietitian if you don't know eating disorders? <laughs> and she was very much willing to work with someone to supervise her to treat me. And I was contemplating that for the first few sessions. And I very quickly realized with the help of my therapist that that was not going to work for me. And as much as I want to be a part of her learning that stuff, I'm not, I was not in a mental place to let that happen. And, and so anyway, eventually I find the one that I see these days and she continually blows my mind. Like, (laughs) It wasn't not long ago where I was saying to her, like, oh, I just really, I want to get to the point where, you know, I have this regular meal plan that I can just rotate and it's all very scheduled and like, I need to eat home more. I need like not eat takeout as much and such. And she said to me, why? (laughs) And I literally like, I almost, I think my head almost exploded because I've seen so many, so many doctors and therapists in my life and no one's ever asked why and I was like well because that's what being healthy is and she's like is it does it really matter if you need to eat out more can we maybe try and work on what those choices are like and I was like oh I didn't even know that was I swear if I was wearing a heart rate monitor like my pulse would have spiked just when you were talking about an eating like a meal plan because nothing scares me more yes. than having a predetermined meal because I live very much in a like I eat what I feel like. And so do you think that's PDA? Because I'm like that too. Maybe, maybe. And because it's yeah. stuff like that that does trigger what I think might be like PDA traits. But like Same. if I know that I there's something waiting in the fridge, yeah, like I cannot think of anything worse to eat than what is sitting there Same. at that point in time. Even if it's like one of my favorite yeah, foods, don't I'm like, nah. feel like it. Yeah. <laughs> Even if I told myself to eat it, and it's not coming from anyone, not a diet, not a dietitian, not a health professional. Even if it's just me saying I want to eat that on this night, I'll be like, no, <laughs> no. If it's planned, that's me. Yeah, absolutely. And it stresses me. Like just when you were talking about it, like I actually felt myself being like, no, like no. <laughs> yeah, they know to the plan. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 So, I felt. Yeah. I feel that too. So I was so relieved when she. I've said not why. thought of it in that. Uh, yeah, in that framework by the PDA. So mm. Yeah, PDA is sneaky, right? Like I'm still wrapping my head around it, but I just think a lot of people think of PDA and think, oh, they don't like being told what to do, which is definitely a part of it. Mm. But I don't think they realize that we put our demands on ourselves so often and most of it we don't even see them as demands. I struggle to reconcile what I see of it clinically. Mm. Um so obviously, like, it's not something yet that can be diagnosed in Australia. No, it's traits yeah. of. Um, and the way that people respond to it and therapists respond to it, I find challenging sometimes, which is this, like, remove all demands from said child. That's um, not how that works. I You're never going to get rid of demands. 
yes, demands yeah. a part of life. But then I know yeah. that like it can just take, if I'm stressed and I have a day off and I'm looking forward to that day off, if my partner even says to me, hey, what are you going to do tomorrow? I'll be like, stop it. No, don't put demands on me. Don't like, no, stop trying to like cut into my free time. And she'll be like, whoa. You're ruining everything. Ask it. Yes, that's what it's like. It's like, ah, all this stress because I don't even want to think about what I have to do. Like I, I just want it to be this clear, open slate. And like just the question to me is yeah. a demand. You're literally restricting my autonomy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, my husband constantly asks me, what do you want for dinner? And it is the most triggering question in my life because I'm like, yeah. I don't want to be asked. Yes. Don't ask me. Like the fact that you're asking yes. is putting a demand on me. And I'm yeah, like, I really struggle no. with that one too. I'm not sure how that overlaps with the eating disorder stuff too. But um, at the moment, my partner and I had a really honest conversation two nights ago because yeah. I'm doing um, one of the meal delivery services. I won't name a brand, but and I'm doing it just for the convenience of having food in the fridge and not thinking about it yes. and I get to select a few different things I don't necessarily eat mm. them on the day that they're scheduled for I eat them when I feel like them of course not and Holly makes her own food and we actually said at dinner the other night I was sitting down eating my meal out of a cardboard box and she was eating whatever she'd cooked for herself yeah and I said I have loved not talking to you about food this week. And she was like, me too. And I was like, great. Oh, so good. Great. And it's taken us a long time to get to, because Holly really has that view about like a shared meal and togetherness and family and blah, 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 to be like. Which is hard for some of us. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that, yeah, mm-hmm. you know, my, what I, me eating my own thing is not a rejection of, you know, you or blah, blah, blah. So that was massive for us. But one of the other things that's been really funny that Holly's had to, yeah. um, really train out of me is that she'll cook something I'll be like what are you making and she'll be like oh it's whatever and I'll be like ugh, yuck and she's like can you not say yuck about my dinner and I'm like sorry that slipped out and so now I say things like that will be nice for you <laughs> like you but like I still like it's such a juvenile response but I'm still like ugh, ugh, gross yeah and we're we're very honest direct people so yeah yeah, yeah. And we're not, it's not like you're wanting to offend her. You're just being honest. Well, see, because I don't see that as offensive. And it's funny because neurotypical people like quite often do. Do. Yes. Yes. Because I'm like, that's fine for you to like it. But like, look, like I, gross. I don't want to eat that. But then I wouldn't be offended if I was eating something and you were like, that looks gross. I would be like, it's delish. Like, yeah, and I'd be like, more for me. That's right. Yeah. So it's, it's really funny how that sort of, that's so funny. and I love that now that I've got that understanding of like autistic culture yeah. as well. Yes. It is. We just have different cultural expectations. And we do. Yeah. We so do. if you and I sat down and ordered two different meals and I was like, that looks feral, you'd be like, love it. Don't want what you're having. And I'd be like, cute. Yeah. And that would be a fine thing for us to say. Yeah, to we would not be offended at so. all. Yeah. No. It's so funny. Yeah. It's so Despite funny. having never met no, each exactly. other, you know, or like, but it would just be for both of yes. us because we've got the same like cultural experience, whatever it is, you know, we're just like, that's fine. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> for people listening, this is the first time we've spoken face to face, but we've been messaging for a little while now. And I said, I said to Frances, uh, like, I think it was the other day, I was like, I asked her what school she went to because I was like, I swear I know you. Like, I just, I like, and I do this, I don't do this with everyone I know, but with all the neurodivergent people I know, there's this level of familiarity that they just get you. And it's funny, I said to my friend the other day, I'm like, this is what neurotypicals must feel like in everyday life, everywhere they go, that people just get them. And I don't, that's so, so rare for me. (laughs) 
<laughs> for so long I would say to people and it would be really funny because they would be like how are you a speech pathologist because I would be like I don't like people like people <laughs> are the worst Agreed. I just do not like people but as I've come to meet other like neurodivergent people I'm like I love neurodivergent oh, people like I actually feel really comfortable with you like yeah um and so when I was at a conference recently that was all about, you know, ASD and ADHD um, people and I was surrounded by these people and I was like, I like you, I like you, hey, I like yes. you too. And I was like, what is this? Am What's I the common denominator? Person? And it's really funny because I've always viewed myself as an introvert because I am like shut myself away in my room, don't want to talk to people. Like when there's people over at the house, I'm like, are you leaving soon? Yes. Um, but then people have always said to me, like people that I've met through work, probably other you know neurodivergent parents and stuff are like yes you're so extroverted you're so and I've always struggled with this like am I an introverted extrovert am I an extrovert yeah and now I'm like no no I'm extroverted with other neurodiverse people right like because you're like me and so I probably am an extrovert extrovert. (laughs) right yeah but with the neurotypicals I'm like yeah I I (laughs) I might just go over here now exactly I don't like small talk and I don't want to hear about your life story like unless it's something to do with what I'm interested in and that's something that we've tapped into like that we've sort of briefly talked about you and I as well but I think it's also because as soon as I'm in one of those interactions my Mm. feelings of shame are triggered yes such a good point and so I probably shut down and want to withdraw because I start to feel pretty rubbish yeah, and I I wonder, like, I would love to unpack that. Uh, we don't have to do that here. I'm saying, like, do that in therapy and let me know how it goes because <laughs> I, I'm similar and what I have unpacked and I'm not sure what's what and what's accurate, what's not. But obviously we've had a lifetime of experience where we've either masked our interest in other people's small talk or whatever the niceties of life are or – We've not masked and then been severely punished and scolded for it. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. So every single time that happens, even though as adults who are quite good at masking when we need to, it's still super traumatic and does trigger those feelings. Absolutely. Now we've shared our trust issues with Red Capsicum, you're going to have to go to the next episode to hear the rest of our delightful conversation. In part two, we talk about everything from info dumping to autistic culture, people pleasing, driving with ADHD, shiny ball syndrome, (laughs) best name ever. Thank you, Francis. We talk about sensory issues and more neurodivergent eating. But my favorite bit is at the very end. And Francis decides to take action. And I will put said action on our website. So don't forget to check it out. www.neurodivergentmillennial. That's two L's and two N's for fellow dyslexics. I hope you enjoyed the first half and I know you'll enjoy the second. See you next time. Over and out.